My guest today put out an album titled Impossible Sum on September 25th of this year, and he is one of the numerous artists playing on the 25-hour-long Halloween telethon hosted by Chicago's Rap Boys coming up in just a few days. My guest today is Maxwell Stern. Max, how are you doing? I'm hanging in there, man. <laughs> <laughs> we weren't talking before we started recording. Uh, the weight of the world is certainly being felt right now. I think every pound that the world has to offer, I am feeling at this moment. But it's okay. I'm talking to you now. It's going to be okay. It's it's really nice. It's It's nice to just feel connected to anybody right now, I think. Yeah. It's, uh, it's in short supply these days. <laughs> I. It's just, it's weird to think, like, I haven't been to a concert in, what, seven months now? Like, that's not normal. That's arguably not healthy. And that's, you know, it's just the world we're living in. But you, like I mentioned just a minute ago, are playing on the Rat Boys telethon. You have the coveted 8 p.m. Central time slot shortly after the Halloween costume contest. I'm going to ask some hard-hitting questions. Off the bat, I want to know your best Halloween costume you've ever dressed up in. Oh man, that's a good question. Uh, let me think about this for a second. Uh, I definitely, okay, so when I was a kid, I was obsessed with John Lennon. Uh, and I definitely went as John Lennon one year and like made a cardboard guitar and like found some of the like round sunglasses that he wore. And like, I was like an eight year old kid just like showing up at people's doors as John Lennon and no one had any idea who I was, but I knew who I was and I felt really cool. I don't know if that was my best costume, but it's just one that sticks out in my head. I kind of stopped dressing up for a while. I think I did a Big Lebowski one, which is like a classic, but that's just a good excuse to wear a bathrobe and drink white Russians. Um, <laughs> and then, yeah, I'm trying to think what else I really, I wanted to do Kylo Ren this year, but, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if there's going to be a good opportunity to do so. <laughs> I, I have so many questions about this John Lennon costume that I wasn't I wasn't necessarily prepared to ask these. But I need to know, one, did you own a guitar at this point and you opted for the cardboard guitar or is this? Oh, no, pre I was this <laughs> pre was pre any music. I was okay. I was like eight or nine years old, maybe. And obviously, like, you know, I grew up on the Beatles and I love the Beatles, but like John Lennon problematic guy like not not a figure that i would recommend as an idol mm. to anyone but at the time you know it was like oh he you know he sings the he sings the nowhere man song i love it so uh yeah but my my folks were very encouraging about music and and they were like sure we'll well, I'll let you build a guitar out of cardboard and wood and some confetti. And yeah, that was a, was a weird memory. <laughs> I am uh, in the rare air of someone that I'm not a music journalist, but I do uh, facilitate myself in those circles. I know nothing about the Beatles. They are a band I did not grow up listening to. And, oh, man. and because I feel like I missed the easy entry point, 
I decided as someone that is prone to hot takes at times, I'm just not going to listen to them because the only other thing worse than I guess liking the Beatles, which everybody does, is being the guy that doesn't like the Beatles. And I don't want to put myself in that position. I think you're just in a bad spot either way. <laughs> exactly. It's like because I part of it is like John Lennon, problematic person. Uh a lot of my musical touchstones come from being a uh, encyclopedic Smiths and Morrissey fan. Also an issue. So I, I can't walk around. Complicated. As the guy, I can't walk around as the guy that's like vocally enjoying Morrissey's music, not his opinions, but his music. And also being like, ah, I don't know about the Beatles. Like I just that's a rock and a hard place. I don't want to put myself in. Yeah. And, and at some point also. Like, I think obviously we have to call out people for being assholes, but I think that if you go back and retroactively cancel everyone who made records, I mean, pre-internet even, I, around I would argue there, like 2013 and yeah, you're, sure. you're hitting a point. <laughs> you go back and retroactively cancel everybody and you're like, okay, well, I just can't listen to anything yeah. anymore. And it's, and it's complex because like some people you know, you shouldn't listen to and you shouldn't support anymore. And then in other things, it's like, you know, everybody has to do their own version of, of, you know, self-editing or separating the art from the artist. And it's just like this kind of weird, like musical and media literacy that our generation has to start figuring out how to parse. And some days I feel really good at it. And other days I'm like, wait, I'm not allowed to like that. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> It's a minefield that I hate navigating. There's no, there's no joy I take. In no, but it, it is, just it awful. is necessary. You know, it absolutely is. Yeah. Well, you could be described in a few ways. I think musician, songwriter, skateboarder. Those are all things that are fair to say about <laughs> Very you. Very <laughs> bad skateboarder. Would you describe yourself though as a content creator? No, <laughs> absolutely not. I think that. Uh, I think that term sucks. <laughs> that term, I hate as, it. as someone that that knows people that legitimately make a living off of the job title content creator, those are good people. But I can also say that job sucks. I mean, look, if you happen to really enjoy like making videos about products or trips you're taking, and you really like the the way you look, I was about to say the sound of your own voice, but also I'm a singer, so maybe that's not the best term to use. You know, if that's what you're into, go for it. But, you know, for me, like, at least from a musical standpoint, like the worst part of the pandemic is is not being able to play shows. And like, that's the whole reason why I got into this. You know, I, I want to jump around and like sweat on people and have them sweat on me. And like, you know, we all yell in each other's faces and we can get close and like, you know, there is an energy there that is like really tangible and you know that's just not what it is now and it, and it's fun to make you know quarantine recordings and videos with your friends and stuff like that and that's a good way to get through it and i guess in in terms of creating content that's what we're doing but i would never want to label myself like that if that's what you do that's fine uh but for me like the day i never have to do another live stream is a joyful day well, that's what I was going to ask was, you know, I, I don't know if you've been doing any of these more collaborative Twitch streams or anything like that. But, yeah, it's it's almost like, a you know, an audio tree session is cool, but it's not better than playing in front of the audience and having yes. that audience removed. It just 
it seems impossible. And I, I just admire the musicians, whether it's Rap Boys or AJJ or whoever else has just said, okay, this is the world now and I've adapted to right. it quickly. More power They've to They've done them. great. They've done great. And I'm really impressed by what Rap Boys has done. I'm impressed at the sheer volume of the stuff that Sean from AJJ has done. You know, everybody's doing what they can. But I guarantee you that all of those people would much rather be out in the world playing shows. You know, I mean, this is how we cope with it. And I've done a bunch of live streams and like sometimes it's nice to see the comments come in and like, you know, see people pop up and it and it feels good to sing. I think like there's a, a physical buzz that you get from from, you know, playing your instrument and singing and like, you know, doing that feels really nice. But uh, yeah, I can't wait until I don't have to do it anymore. <laughs> Have you, I know you were tweeting about this recently, and I don't remember the uh, verbiage of the tweet offhand, so I apologize, but have you dipped your toe into the TikTok water yet? Is that something that we're going to see anytime <laughs> soon? Maxwell's turn on TikTok. I haven't gotten on it yet. Um, I was talking with my buddy Aaron, who runs uh, the record label I'm on, Lauren Records, um, and he was like, did you see that Roar got huge on tiktok there's this band roar from uh from phoenix who have been putting out really weird awesome pop records for like a decade now the singer owen is actually the the drummer for ajj um and we played with them in like 2015 in san jose california and then we played another show with them in san diego a few days later anyway um they have this song called i can't handle change and like some teen on tiktok started like lip syncing it and um there's this part on it that's like for no reason at all and he just started making videos saying for no reason at all for no reason at all and like in different scenarios just doing stuff for no reason and it picked up and i went on roar's spotify page and they have 37 million plays on that song and a million monthly listeners that is like Carly Rae Jepsen levels of popular like it's so much and I think it's great it's so great get those royalties get those plays man I uh a similar thing happened with Chicago's Beach Bunny where like Beach Bunny is the one band that I was ahead of the curve on I had people in my ear being like you gotta listen to Signals Midwest you gotta listen to Dogleg and I'd be like I'll I'll get to them but eventually I'll get I around did. to it <laughs> yeah it's, it's like I'll, I'll get around to it eventually uh but Beach Bunny was the one that I, I saw them open for Radiator Hospital a few years ago and I was like holy shit like this I need more of this and then they blew up on TikTok and I don't know if there's like uh, a comparison to the yesteryear of like maybe a band had one video on MTV two that really blew up in some sort of rock block, but I have seen the power of TikTok. I did not know roar was big. That is so funny, but I saw beach buddy go from like fun little Chicago indie band to like, Oh, they're like kind of a big deal now. And it's simply through catching on on TikTok. So uh, if That's you want how those, you do it, I those guess. Spotify residual checks, I think you got to go to TikTok, max. Yeah. I think I got to pivot. <laughs> well, I, I'm curious because the Twitch stream that we were talking about, you know, Rap Boys is supporting the Equal Justice Initiative and Girls Rock Chicago, which I can speak to being a tremendous organization. But I'm kind of curious, you being a performer, not being able to tour, just putting out a record. Is there anything that consumers like myself and the listeners can do to directly support artists in perhaps a more efficient way than simply playing them on Spotify or Apple Music? 
Uh, I mean, I think just buying physical media, that, that's like a big thing. You know, me and most of my friends, like we do our own mail order. Like yeah. if you buy something from us, we just ship it to you. We like don't, it doesn't go down to the boys in the warehouse or anything like that. You know, Not the Lauren of- Records conglomerate. You guys aren't in your ivory tower <laughs> shipping out records. <laughs> I mean, Aaron does have my records at his place in California and I'm here in Philadelphia, but like, you know, I still sell shirts and tapes and other stuff like that. And like, you know, depending on your deal, there's usually some sort of like way it gets split up. So yeah, physical media merchandise. That's a, that's a big one. Um, you know, the other thing I, I think that's really valuable is just like word of mouth stuff. You know, if you like a band, post about them, share them, you know, like tell your friends about it. Like I, I'm 31 now. I kind of came of age in, I guess, an era where social media was just really starting to take off. But like, I discovered so many bands that I loved through like mix CDs that my friends burned me, like before playlists were a thing, you know? I, it was really cool to have like a big MP3 library in iTunes or Windows Media Player or whatever. So, you know, I discovered a lot of that stuff just through like getting stuff from my friends. Oh, like Kazaa, LimeWire, all of these places. Uh, you know, there was like a real kind of like, you had to seek it out a little bit more, you know, you find out about it in the zine or something like that. And, you know, people are older folks who would listen to this and be like, yeah, I mean, I used to have to go to record stores and like stuff like that. But, you know, I kind of found it in the middle, like before the full transition to streaming actually happened. So, you know, it, it that felt really special to me. Do you miss the hunt at all? Because I know like I'm 21. I grew up in an age where, I was buying songs on iTunes individually, but then by the time I was a freshman or a sophomore in high school, I was on board with streaming, and I'm someone that I've never bought a CD. I got into buying music my sophomore year of high school, and that was when I immediately went for vinyl. So I like I've heard stories of these hunts of finding these albums or you know yeah. discovering bands and maximum rock and roll, but it's not something that I ever experienced, but you kind of have both sides of the coin there. Is that something you miss just not having the instant gratification? You know, I don't want to say it's like something that I don't want to say like, Oh, it was better back in the day or whatever. Like, I don't, I think that's just like an old head thing to say. <laughs> and like, it's it's elitist in a number of ways and i i don't i don't want to say like oh the old ways were better um but you know it felt a little more special when everything wasn't quite as accessible and like you know i I would get cds and like i wouldn't know what bands were on the cd you know and i would have to like hunt it down and like google the lyrics or something like that or you know, or maybe I'd forget about it and then I'd hear it six months later, or I'd see him at a show and they'd play the song. I'd be like, oh, that was, that was what that was. And, you know, that was kind of fun. Uh, you know, I like what streaming has done in certain regards in terms of accessibility. Uh, and then it's also totally decimated the music industry. So, you know, it's kind of a... <laughs> kind of a catch 22 yeah that is that is tough well you mentioned word of mouth and and obviously i love the record you put out this year but before we talk about that 
I do want to talk about uh, your Twitter feed has been full of not only Tom Petty anecdotes recently, but <laughs> you just recently discovered the smoking popes. Is this correct? I kind of want to know what you've been listening no, to. No, 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 no. That, that was not a that was not a, a new discovery. I've no, I've liked the smoking popes for a long time. I was just having a day where I was like, damn, this band is fucking awesome. They're incredible, aren't they? What has been in your your sort of quarantine mix? Because I know when first uh, when things first got bad, I found immense comfort in the somber tones of Big Thief. And ever since then, I've kind of spread it off into different directions. But what have you been listening to over the past seven months or so? Uh, I mean, I think the big one for me is like getting really deep in the Tom Petty discography and like kind of tracing his whole career arc over like 40 years. And like, you know, I rewatched the documentary with my girlfriend at the beginning of quarantine and like it's four hours long and it's awesome and so in depth and you just kind of like get all the eras of petty um you learn that he put together the first fest in gainesville florida it wasn't called fest and it wasn't actually the same thing but it was a backyard music festival with bands that came from all around and it happened in gainesville so it was the exact same idea as what it is now and uh i just i really like that connection a lot so yeah tom petty's been a big one um I listened to, oh man, see, now I feel like I have to like pull my Spotify up and be like, what was I, what was I listening to? I, I got to say, while you pull your Spotify up, I am so blown away at the idea of Tom Petty essentially setting up fest and games with the <laughs> idea of the hotel you're playing a set before Tom Petty in a bar somewhere. I mean, it's a bit of an exaggeration, <laughs> but you find out like, oh, well, the clubs didn't, he was like, the clubs didn't want to book us really. So we just, you know booked our own and then like friends bands would come in and play too and then we did it again and they like got the permit from the cops and got the pa rented and everything it's just like this this rules dude. tom petty's kind of a diy king i don't know if we give him enough credit for that but more power no, to he him. he really was and, and you find out in the documentary about how he just like brought the band out to la and was like they did a demo and you know he just went into different record labels and was like we made a demo give us a record deal and like he wasn't waiting for anybody to give him permission to do anything which is super cool so yeah he was the shit i have my playlist pulled up just of stuff that i was kind of listening to like while i was making my record and and i guess over the last like over the last year or so i actually wanted to talk to you about this because i he'll, he'll probably listen to this but like my brother's band same put a record out back in may and like I listened to it so much and like we have another band together, but like we live in different cities now and like, I don't see them very often. So when the record came out, I was like really kind of obsessed with it. And like, I, I listened, it's probably one of my most played of the year. The, the band's called same. The record's called plastic Western. Uh, I think he's been on this show. I was going to say, you could listen it's to it. You it's can, just good vibes, man. A track by track breakdown of plastic Western on this show. If uh, any of the listeners are, are so inclined to give that a shot, but yeah, plastic Western was one that really uh, caught me by surprise. I, maybe I shouldn't say caught me by surprise. Just it, once I heard it, it really sunk in with, every listen like this is a a very well-made rich sounding full album it was very nice it's awesome and it's very like original and cool like it's got like pinback vibes it's got yola tango vibes it's just 
odd songwriting and like kind of surreal and textures and tones are all great. I just it's it's just a, a treat to listen to. So, well, yes, your brother also talked about Pinback on the show, the Pinback self-titled record. Another very fun episode, a band I was entirely unfamiliar with prior to sitting down with him and listening to that album. But one that I, I you know, I'm conflicted on Pinback. I think there are some highs sure. and some lows on that record, but uh, I agree. Ultimately, when it hit, it really hit a really fun album to listen to. There are some distinct vibes on those records. I think that I don't really think of them as like a pop band or something like that. But in terms of just like textures and uh, like a mood that gets created, they're a really cool band. I would I would completely agree with that. I mentioned the Smoking Popes earlier. I have a definitive Smoking Popes moment in my life. I saw them a few years ago. Sincere Engineer opened up on that show. It was a lot of fun. Uh, sincere, uh, yes. sincere Engineer, the sidekicks of the Smoking Popes. That was a very, very good show. That's a very good show. <laughs> it's really solid. But uh, that was the show where I knew... Any show I attend after that, I need to wear earplugs because I was standing too close to a, a speaker during the Smoking Pope show. was approximately deaf in my left ear for about three days afterwards. A, you get that kick drum, that yeah, kick drum hitting you. I, I felt everything. That was just monitors to the max. Like they were playing as loud as possible. And it really scared me for the next few days. So I go earplugs now, a defining moment for me. But I was going to ask you about a defining moment that you recently tweeted about 16 year old Max. Maxwell Stern in a sports bar watching Jeff Rosenstock play. I'd love, <laughs> I'd love to hear this story. Uh, sure. Yeah, I think that was the first Bond the Music Industry tour that ever happened. Wow. Um, yeah, Laura Stevenson was in the band at that point. That was when I met her. Um, yeah, I loved Sky as a kid. I still do. Um and I had found Jeff's old band, The Arrogant Sons of Bitches, on MySpace. Uh, and I found them, like, right as they broke up, I think in 2004. And Jeff put up the first uh, bomb song, which I think was called Sweet Home Cannonata. It was, it was like this acoustic song, and then it got all, like, huge and blown out and fuzzy at the end. It ended up being on that record, Album Minus Band. And I just, I found it, like, right when it started. And as like a 14, 15 year old kid hearing music that was like, it was ska, but it also wasn't, had like acoustic elements and like hardcore elements and like all of this other stuff. And the songwriting was just like very frantic at times and like highly specific lyrics and very like, you know, he could be talking about like a depressive episode, but he could also just be talking about like what he had for lunch that day or something like, you know, there was like really mundane shit and then like really heavy shit too. And the songwriting just connected with me so much. Um, and it was right around the time where I was starting to book shows. I didn't actually book the one that we're talking about, but yeah, they came and played in a sports bar uh, in Cleveland on the college campus that I later would attend. I think I was, yeah, I was 16. So Jeff was probably 22 or something like that. I remember it was the first tour. He still had like copies of Arrogant Sons of Bitches records and, yeah, I mean, it. the sound was terrible, but it was really, really fun. And they had a, a bring your own band policy. Uh, and I had learned two songs on guitar. So I got to play two songs with Jeff and it was pretty awesome. I got to play a song called Ready, Set, No that I still love. 
And uh, yeah, that was a that was a big one. I was like, this band I love came to my town, played for like 30 people on the floor, and I got to play a song or two with them. Like, what is it? All just felt like very, very accessible and cool, and like completely unlike going to see Blink One Eight Two and Green Day at like you know the huge amphitheater that I saw them at. Like, it was just this. It was a pretty revolutionary thing, and that kind of got me into uh, to the whole world of DIY punk. That's that's incredible because I, I I think you're in the rare air of people that were in the bomb the music industry on the ground floor. I mean, you should wear that as a as a badge of honor <laughs> in a sense. And I'm you know ten years younger than you. It makes sense in 2005 or I'm sorry in 2015 is when I was sort of getting into this stuff. And Jeff had just recently put out We Cool, which was yeah. at that point his second solo record. And I was like, oh my god, who is this guy? Like he's touring with Modern Baseball. Like I love yeah. Modern Baseball. I need to know who this guy is. And, and at that point, he'd already been doing it for like 20 years. It's insane because I, I think the Arrogant Sons of Bitches timeline gets neglected a little bit because you go, oh, well, you know, we had Bomb before that. But no, there was there was a band even before that that, you know, yeah. your mileage on ska may vary. But at least there is some artistic credibility there that I find yeah. to be incredible. Jeff Rosenstock is kind of I wanted to ask you about this of like Jeff put out an album this year. And like we were talking it's about. great 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 record just it you know and that was very jeff it just popped up one day and it's like okay we have a a full-length jeff rosenstock album to listen to now okay let me mentally prepare myself but we can't we can't go see him is is there any artist because he's kind of at the top of my list of like assuming live music can return i want to go see jeff rosenstock play no dream are there any artists you have you know friends of yours or just people you admire where you're just salivating for the idea of being able to be in a crowd with them again yeah i mean i think bands like jeff and and pup are are big ones for me you know just bands that are like really easy to just kind of lose your mind to um you know i i would have liked to see a see against me again i think they're they've been one of my favorite bands for a really long time and uh i was looking forward to them coming through again and you know i'd like to see some of the bigger bands but honestly the stuff i miss the most is just like the local like weeknight bar shows and just like seeing friends play and stuff like that uh you know it's this it's the simple things and as much as i miss like the big blown out rock shows and the spectacles, you know, just like, I would love to go to a house show with 15 people. Like I would love that so much, you know, just, just to be like, this is mellow and special and like can exist independently of everything else. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I, I miss it all. You know, I think it, it, the scale of it sort of varies, uh, but yeah, I don't know. I, I get sad when I think about it. <laughs> yes, I, I I sensed the sadness in your voice, and I felt bad for asking the question because it's not, no, no, it's not okay, what it's I was okay. To do. It's it's totally fine. No, I mean, it's it's, it's, it's just awful. part of the ex, it's part of the existence right now. Um, I was supposed to go see the Slackers like right before everything shut down, and they're like they're just this incredible band from New York. They're mainly like ska rock steady band, but they've they've been at it for like you know probably twenty five or thirty years, and they're all just incredible musicians and so many good records under their belt and uh yeah i was ecstatic to go see them but it all it all got canned and uh you know so be it so be it but yeah when when things return i'm gonna hit it hard 
Yeah, I think that's I think we all owe that to ourselves that when things return to really, you know, uh, splurge a little bit and to go make sure that we're seeing the bands we need to go see. One of them being yourself, whether it's, you know, you or any of the numerous bands that you have played. And I want to talk about your music a little bit. I think we got in touch uh, through mutual friend Isaac Marmando, who's been on the show, who to come full circle. We talked about a Jeff Rosenstock album, but uh I texted them about your song Tying Airplanes to the Ground that you made oh, with yeah. Rap Boys. Maybe the best song I've heard this year. I know you just put out a record full of Thank amazing you. songs, but Tying Airplanes to the Ground, I, I, I'd i like to know the story about how that came about, maybe the mindset you were in when you wrote it, because it is just a terribly pretty song, and, and I just <laughs> encourage all of my listeners to, if they haven't heard it, pause it, listen to the song, obviously come back, but really take your time to ingest what I think is just a marvelous track. Thank you so much. Uh, that one, whenever people ask me about songwriting, I'm always like, yeah, the, the ones that end up feeling really special usually just kind of happen. Like, I had a really good conversation with my best friend, Justin, maybe the night before, um, just about kind of like what what we were heading into and like how to purposefully spend your time and and stay connected to people and you know what we hoped for out of the year um and it was also a few days after john prine had passed who's uh and his music is something that i've really gotten into over the last year i mean i was you know 40 or 50 years late on on discovering him but you know did you know also there were there were some timing issues there mainly that i wasn't born for most of his records um i completely but, understand as someone that got into him you pretty much the week before he passed away i was like oh my god this this shit rocks like where have i, I mean, been he's, he's incredible and you know i just i had him on my mind a lot and then uh you know when he passed and this this conversation i had with one of my best friends i was just like just like a heavy day or two. And then, I don't know. I mean, it's the same with any creative pursuit. Like you get an idea in your head and then you feel like you're going to explode if it doesn't come out of you right then and there. So, you know, I sat down, I worked through it. I I sent a demo to Adam in Chicago. Adam is my one of my best friends. He plays drums in Sincere Engineer, Into It Over It. Uh, he played on the record and yeah, I just... I actually know what happened is I posted a video of me just like playing about myself and a lot of people responded to it. And I was like, okay, I think I got a good one here. Uh, I sort of like, you know, tested it out a little bit. And then <laughs> Adam texted me. out there, got a good response. Right, right, I understand. Right. Which is cool. You know, I, something I, going back to Jeff, like something that I really loved that he would do is that for all the bomb stuff, he would make all the demos available before he would make the actual record like he would demo out all the drums like program them and shit and put up the entire record demos for free download before he made the actual record here's like here's what we're gonna go make like it's, it's just such a cool way to to go about like making music in like an open fashion so yeah i, I just wanted to put something out as like hey i wrote this song yesterday and then adam hit me up and he's in chicago and he was like hey that one's really good you should uh record it to a metronome so I can play drums on it. And then I did that. And then unbeknownst to me, he hit up Julia and Dave from Rat Boys and like had her sing on a bunch of stuff. And then our buddy Evan played keys on some stuff. And and Ian Farmer, one of my best friends here in Philly, played bass on it. And this was sort of happening with like varying levels of my knowledge. Like it was just kind of Adam emailing everybody and being like, hey, do this. And then we're all going to like surprise Max. So 
I didn't know really that it was happening until like I got a rough mix of it and was like, whoa, where did everybody come from? So that was it was a special one. It was just nice to be surprised. That's that's incredible. I did not know the way that that song was constructed. I mean, it, it sounds like it was this uh, almost this giant sense of unity and collaboration. And to find out that it's not is mind blowing. I mean, it was it was just that it was an unwitting collaboration yes. and that I didn't know <laughs> that it was going to happen. I was so stoked when I when I got that mix. I was like, holy shit, like Julia's on here and she sounds so like I cried when I heard her voice through the first time because you know, ha- hearing other people sing lyrics that I had written, um, especially one like that, which is like a pretty personal tune. And like, it was just me trying to get my head around what was going on. Um, yeah, to hear her, you know, and her voice does something that's like very beautiful and, and very different than what I do, which is just like a lot of like low mid range, like congested Jewish honk. <laughs> which is what I think I bring to the table. Um, but yeah, hear, hear her voice like a fucking beautiful laser beam was uh, was pretty cool. Yeah, she is. She's unbelievable on that track. And we were talking before we started recording. You know, Rap Boys was the last band that I saw live, and I, I cherish that now. I saw them at the hideout. I also just recently saw a video of Julia with Pet Symmetry covering Pet Cemetery by the Ramones, and Julia comes out on stage and has the intensity of like an inside out or early rage against the machine show. Like she comes out and murders this Ramones cover. And then I flip back to tying airplanes to the ground. And it's like this, like soft, like alt country kind of sound, but Oh my God, she's so talented. It's unbelievable. Just she's I got I, range it's range and this intensity that I didn't know she had in her. And it's just, it's so beautiful to see. And then you mentioned that Ian Farmer played bass on it, which I did not realize until earlier this afternoon when I was looking at the Bandcamp page and I was like, Oh, this is everybody I like in music in one song. And it, it got me thinking about, I was just looking at a, a tweet from heart attack man a few weeks ago where they tweeted out the bill to the 2013, Stay Sweet Fest in Richmond, oh, the Virginia. Greatest, the greatest festival ever. I was going to ask, because this 2013 lineup that was played to approximately 200 people, it's, yeah, it's modern, like a 250 cap. Modern baseball, Captain We're Sinking, obviously Signals Midwest. What do you remember from what looks like the the greatest weekend ever? And not to keep bringing up like, oh, old shows, but I saw this no, lineup no, and fine. I had to ask. It's a, it was a, a really special one. I mean, it was as a venue called the camel in Richmond, Virginia. So while one band was playing on the stage another band would be setting up opposite them in the, like across the room on the floor. So there was really no gap between sets. As soon as one band was done, the audience would just turn. Uh, and it was a really nice way to do things because normally there's like 15 minutes between each band for setup time. So there was no lost time there which was really cool because then you end up having like 30 bands a day um yeah i mean i think that era was like i think like the front bottoms played at like two in the afternoon to like 40 people or something like that you know it was just this era where like i might i might have been confusing that one with like a year earlier but there were only ever three of them it was just an era where the music was catching on but it like hadn't caught the wave yet you know people hadn't really tried to start making money off of it yet it was just like still pretty diy 
you didn't really have to deal with a lot of booking agents. Everybody kind of knew everybody. I feel like there was a lot less clout chasing. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just a beautiful moment in time to just be able to be like, okay, well, I'm going to watch. They were called Code Orange Kids at the time. Like, I'm going to watch Code Orange play, and then I'm going to turn around and watch World is a Beautiful Place, and then I'm going to turn around, and I'm going to watch the Menzingers. I'm going to turn around, I'm going to watch the Sidekicks, and then I'm going to watch Modern Baseball. And, like, you know, all of these bands, you know, could fill huge rooms on their own now and do. But, yeah, it was all just, like, two or 300 people in a room for the day. Do you have a specific like demarcation point of maybe where the scene started to change a little bit. Cause you were involved in all this and I can only speak to it as a fan and I'm not throwing them under the bus by any means. I want to make that clear, but it seemed like there was like, if you want to call it the emo revival, like there was, there was this scene and then modern baseball's Holy ghost came out and then everything, everything after was something different. But I only know that as a consumer and as a fan, but do you feel like in the scene, there was a point where you just looked around and things were a little bit different? Yeah. I mean, I think that it's interesting that you bring up Holy Ghost as a demarcation because I would have thought that it was like a record or two before that. Mm-hmm. I think the difference between that record and a bunch of other of the like emo revival records, I say that in air quotes, <laughs> um, is that that record's really good. Like it, it's it really, really, it's, it's really, really good. good. The songwriting is is awesome and thoughtful and like does not rely on these kinds of like tropes that I feel like a lot of bands really start to started to rely on. And, you know, it started sort of to feel to me, like it was way more about like, Oh, I smoke weed and play a jazz master and I'm socially awkward and not like, I want to write good songs. And, you know, I'm talking a lot of shit right now. And like, I like a lot of dumb stuff and a lot of bad stuff, but I also think that, that's what you're into. That's what you're into. That's fine. I don't know if I necessarily believe in guilty pleasures or anything like that. You know, look, I, I grew up listening to ska. I still love ska, you know, ska was like super, and it was the kind of ska that was like a super like whitewashed and co-opted and like very derivative version of what was once like very revolutionary music. So, you know, maybe I'm trying to cover my tracks a little bit when I was slinging a little bit of shit there, but you know, I don't know if there was a certain demarcation so much as it was just the bands got bigger and people started making money and it started reaching people who would, it wouldn't have normally reached without that having happened and talent buyers got involved and festivals got involved and bigger record labels got involved and, you know, the music world started to change as it always does. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the nature of it. That's the nature of any scene or any subculture. It's going to go in waves. I just happen to be around for a wave. Yeah. That's, that's very interesting. Maybe, maybe Holy ghost is almost more just the end rather than a change. It almost seems like maybe that was the end of the wave and everything that washed ashore was the formation of something different that we're now seeing come to fruition now. That's that's very interesting because I think there was an innocence to maybe the 2012 to 2015 emo revival scene that just it's yeah. just nice to think about just to think that these bands whether it's a modern baseball or the world is a beautiful place whoever it is like 
Like, I want more than anything, because I never saw Modern Baseball live. They came to Indiana once when I was in high school, and I, like, I, I wasn't driving at that point, and I couldn't get a friend to take me. Yeah. And then they were supposed to come around again. And at this point I had my license. I was like, Oh my God, like I'm good. Like modern baseball is like a change my life band. Like I really think that. And, and they're then, a special band. Yeah. They, and, they are. And you know, that tour was canceled. They never, they never came again. So more than anything, it's like, I love slaughter beach dog. I love everything he and farmer does, but I'm like one day fingers crossed modern baseball reunion will happen. But it's just like, if it does, they'll, they'll fill up a giant room and it's not, it's not what it once was, which isn't necessarily bad, but it is different. Like you said, yeah, I mean, stuff changes. You know, it, it's funny, like, when they were just starting out in, like, 2011, 2012, I remember getting a Facebook message from their manager, Eric, just being like, hey, can you help me book a show in Cleveland on, like, December 28th? And I remember being like, who the fuck is this band? Like, I don't I don't want to help them. I'm, this is the holidays. I'm tired. I want to, like, you know, get drunk with my friends and, like, to hang out at home and I didn't end up helping them. And then I, I think I booked them like a year later at a house in Akron called it's a cling thing. And like 40 people came, but all of those 40 people knew every word to their songs. And I was just like, Oh, this is, this is going to be something special. I don't know what it is yet. Uh, and you know, to be honest, like I never really felt, like I was of that wave because I was always a little bit older and like the the things that most people knew me at that point from Signals Midwest and like the stuff that excited us was like very much like punk rock. It was like Lawrence Arms, Dillinger 4, Ladderman, Hot Water Music, uh, Lemuria was a big one, um, you know, like those were the bands that I was into. Like I did, I had no idea who like, and then later we got into like braid and, and small brown bike and bear bear shark and bands that were like a little bit more, I guess a little bit more progressive, but people started calling us emo. And I was like, I don't even know what that is. Like I thought we were just punk rock band. And then like, you know, the, the two things kind of fuse together and you get emo and you get post hardcore and you get pop punk and you get all of these different little niches that you, people have to throw you into and, and then you have to react to that. So anyway, I know I'm going on a bit of a tangent here. It's just nice to think about. Oh, no, please. That was it was very interesting to listen to it. And with that, we should probably talk about your music a little bit. The record Impossible sure. Song, which came out at the end of September, one that I was looking forward to the day it came out, one that did not disappoint. But uh, I'm curious because you've you've played in so many band signals. Midwest was, you know, a, a band of the scene for a while. At what point? did you kind of decide to make a solo record under your name? Was that a big undertaking for you? Was there any pressure involved there? Actually, it was kind of the opposite. I think I, and like, I, I love the signals guys and, you know, we've been a band for over 12 years now. And like, that's several lifetimes in punk rock. And, you know, I love them. I love making music with them, but I have to write a very specific kind of song, you know, like it's gotta be, you know, it's gotta have at least a decent tempo. It's gotta probably get loud at some point, you know, like we do a couple things that I think we do pretty well, I guess. Uh, but 
you know, I've always listened to a lot of other kinds of music too, you know, and you know, whether if it was like, you know, I had a project called Meridian with my brother that was very like folk influenced. Um, and I get maybe even like a little bluegrassy or something like that, you know, banjos and <laughs> Do, mandolins doing and whatever you can to fully embrace the Midwestern Americana vibes that you were yeah. grew up around. And it's just good music. And, you know, I, I, I wanted to write some other kinds of songs and sometimes I would have an idea and I would sit down and try to chase it and it would kind of be just too pretty for signals or too slow or, or whatever. But I ended up just hanging on to a bunch of them and I showed them to Adam who uh, was really kind of a champion for a lot of that stuff. And he was like, Hey, this is uh this is good. You should chase this some more. Like, you should see what you can do with it and I'll help you. So I don't think I would have done it if, if he hadn't been like, Hey, don't think of these songs as throwaways. Like just because they don't fit your current band doesn't mean that you shouldn't make them. And uh, yeah, he kind of kept bugging me about it for a while. And then, uh, you know, I, I made an EP in 2017 once I got out here to Philly just to kind of like mark my arrival, I guess, just like, Hey, I moved to a new city. I made a record in this city. I'm going to try to do more of my own thing. Uh, and then it just kind of developed from there. Well, I, I, I am so glad you followed through and that these songs weren't just filler or whatever they were going to be. I was listening to the song Water Tower earlier today. It hit me that that song, you released it in March. I just because of the way the year has gone, I was like, oh, this song's been out for two years now. And then I, I looked at my Spotify and I was like, oh, wait a minute. It's funny that you bring that one up, actually, because, uh, yes, it came out in March, like right when the pandemic was hitting. And there's a music video that I filmed for it. Um, Signals played in Brooklyn on March 7th. And that's a fucking weird timeline. Oh, man. <laughs> so I hung out on Sunday, March 8th with my buddy Chris. And we went skateboarding in Prospect Park in Brooklyn. And he brought a video camera. And he just sort of followed me around. And we were just cruising. And I edited it together. And that was the last day that I went outside and was around people without a mask on. And that and it's so weird to have that. Like, the entire video is just me skateboarding. It's all, like, my face. And, yeah, the it's just so strange to have a document of that. You know, and what I thought was just going to be like a fun day, you know, just chilling, cruising is now like frozen in time as like the last time I felt remotely normal. And it's very, very strange that we happen to be filming that day. Yeah, that is that is remarkable. I, I can't even think of the last event, the last thing I would have done that, that didn't require that because I don't have video of it. That is that is incredible to think of, but it's a song that has kind of uh, lasted with me through the summer months and into the fall. It's one that I really enjoy. I did want to ask you a little bit about uh, the, the line in the middle of the song where you say it's only human uh, to want a better deal, but all that gets you is an awful little screen in the bedroom, peering in other people's highlight reels. Do you find yourself to be a competitive person, even in this DIY emo scene, if you want to call it? Are you looking for something more something better are you competitive in that sort of way i'm not competitive i am comparative mm. and that's really what it is um you know I, I think for a long time i think this this my answer is twofold the first part is that for a long time and especially in like my mid-20s when 
I guess that whole emo scene we were talking about was kind of exploding. Um, you know, I really wanted to like be on bigger tours and be on a bigger label or, or any of those things that I think people usually want or, or, you know, they tend to work towards or whatever. Some people get it. Some people don't. It happens for a variety of reasons. Um, but I think what happened is that I, I kind of deprived myself of a lot of joy because I was just like, oh, well, we have to make this record so that we can put it out so we can go on tour, so we can meet bigger bands, so we can get on a bigger label, so we can get on bigger tours. And like the cycle just perpetuates itself. And it's just like, no, dude, just make it because it feels good. And it make music that you would want to listen to and tour because it's fun. And it's something that you want to work at and get better at. And only now over the last couple of years, really, I, th I think like Pin, which was the Signals EP that came out in 2019, was like really the first record that we had made since we had started the band where I was just like, we're just going to put this out and it's going to be exactly what we want to do. And we're going to tour as much as we want to. And we're going to only play with the bands that we want to play with. And like, it's just pure fun. And you know, that has been my favorite release so far because it was just such a positive thing. And I, I think I, I was so caught up in like wondering not whether shows were going to be good or whether we were going to level up or get on a festival or a tour or whatever that I didn't enjoy it as much in the moment. So that I think sort of speaks to your comparative or competitive question. Absolutely. I think, I think I was, I don't think I give a shit anymore. You know, when shows come back, it'll be nice to play to more people, but like, you know, for me, the, the joy is in the making of, of the music with people you care about and like just doing shit that you believe in and doing stuff that you don't think is corny, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that clarity is something you like. Yes, that clarity is very enriching. I mean, that's that's awesome to hear because uh, that is uh, something I know I can work on. I, I'm sure listeners. I mean, I, I can, can too, that. man. I, I, I struggle with it still, but, you know, it's just. I, I try to do just stuff in, in like in service of the song and in, in service of like what I believe the best path forward to be and just like putting in honest work and not just like relying on a trope because it's what you do or making a decision because you think it's what X band would do or something like that. And uh, yeah, I, I guess the other part of my answer is that, you know, the part that you're referencing in Water Tower is, you know, look, social media and, you know, everyone's relationship with it, like examining this stuff is not a new concept by any means. We all know it's bad for us in certain ways, but right now it's also kind of the connective tissue of, of a lot of my friend group and, and extended world. So, you know, sometimes it can be a bit of a comparison machine where you fire it up and you just see all of the great stuff that everybody else is doing and you compare it against the stuff that kind of gets left on the cutting room floor of your brain. And you're like, well, my life's not that great. But, you know, everyone's picking their highlights. Everyone's picking their best stuff to show to the world. And that's all well and good. But it's so important to just, like, keep this at the forefront of your mind when you do engage with social media. And I think Instagram in particular because it's so image heavy um which is why i like twitter because it's mostly just nerds fucking around <laughs> like myself uh but, but you know i i think it's it's 
a constant pursuit to try to have a healthier relationship with that stuff. And there are some days where I feel like I'm really good at it. And there are other days where I'm like, I just scrolled for two hours and I feel fucking terrible. Yes. So, uh, that is yeah. a, a constant battle. What I, I commend you for fighting. Yes. That's, <laughs> that's no good. Well, I, I, I had two quick questions about the album uh, as well. One sure. in pull the stars down. That is a timeshare song that you made. Correct. What made you want to rework it for your solo album? Um, it was always going to be a solo song and I played a demo for John and he was like, that song rules. Can we do a version of it? And I was like, oh man, well, like I love John and and Mike and Eric and I've loved playing in that band since I moved out here. And, you know, we were tour mates and friends well before I got out here and well before I joined the band. So when he wanted to take the song, I was like, yeah, man, like, but you should sing it because like, I don't sing in timeshares. I'll sing some harmonies, but like, I don't like, I have an, enough of me. Like I got a couple of bands, like I do solo shit under my own name. Like, you know, I don't, I don't need to insert myself into another thing and be like, here's my voice front and center. So he took it and he like changed the lyrics some and like did a really cool treatment with it. And I think it, it was cool. You know, they were excited about it. I, I think that, their band was kind of in a weird spot before I joined. They didn't really know what was going on and, you know, recording shit's fun, but you know, we did a really mellow version of it on that EP. And I always kind of knew I wanted it to be more of like a, a bit more of a rocker. And uh, yeah, you know, and also the other thing is like, this is a time honored tradition of like people doing different versions of songs, you know, like, Dylan would do traditional songs and like Tom Petty would do covers and stuff like that. And like, yeah, the whole idea of like folk music is that it gets passed down and people take ideas and they change them and they share them and stuff like that. So I really, I really like the idea of like doing different interpretations of songs, sharing them, just like, you know, exploring it, you know, a song doesn't just have to be one thing. Absolutely. Well, well, finally on this album, there, there's so much in here, but I, I the one uh, line that stood out to me as one that I, I, I had to ask you about was in Fly Over Town, you say, and if my Midwestern minutes only translate to seconds out here. Did you get the reference? Is it a Defi- Defiance Ohio reference? It is. Oh, thank God. Because I was like, man, I, I don't know if Maxwell Stern has that third eye open and is not participating in this folk punk erasure that is happening at the, oh, uh, no. the modern scene. But I, that, yeah. I enjoy a Defiance Ohio reference when I hear one. So bravo to you. That band was revolutionary. That it band was incredible. like one of my all time faves. And like right as I was discovering like the music industry and like first going to house shows, like they were they were the band that I would see and like freak out about. In fact, they, I wonder, I'm going to look it up right now because it used to be, they had a, a site that was hosted on a domain called terrorware. It was like <laughs> defianceohio.terrorware.com. And uh, well, I'm not in the header anymore, but I used to be in the header, uh, of the website where like it was me and my friend like screaming in the crowd screaming back to them and like pointing at a show in pittsburgh we were like 17 or 18 and i just remember like making it onto the header of the website and being like oh my god 
I made it onto the Defiance Ohio site. This is so cool. And you know what? I still think it's cool. I still love those records. All of those folks make a lot of other great music too. Yeah, that was a it was a big band for me. I, I heard the Defiance Ohio reference, wanted to make note of it, wanted to say that I appreciate it, and uh, a job well done there. Have you seen the video of Anthony Fantano dancing at the Defiance Ohio show? I did. I saw it. Is he cool or is he canceled? What's his deal? He's fine. He was, I, I, my understanding is that he was mistakenly canceled. All right. I, I could be wrong, but that is my read of the situation. I think he's cool. I can't keep up on shit. <laughs> it's exhausting. I don't know how you do it. I don't know how anybody does it. But uh, Maxwell Stern, thank you so much for joining the program. Like I said, you are participating in the Rap Boys Halloween Telethon, which takes place Halloween night into November 1st. It is a 24. 24- yes, and I had better get back to work on it. <laughs> exactly. A 25-hour live stream on uh, that Rap Boys is hosting. You get more information in the live link or in the description to this episode uh so many talented bands and artists playing on that stream so check that out support the great organizations equal justice initiative and girls rock chicago that they are helping out and listen to impossible sum the new maxwell starred record out on lauren records it is a tremendous listen it is worth your time maxwell Stern, is there anything else you'd like to say anything you'd like to plug uh you know you did a great job there man um just thanks for having me and everybody take care of each other absolutely well if you want to get in touch with me i'm on both twitter and instagram at underscore case low c-a-s-e-l-o-w-e and the podcast itself can be found on instagram at art school albums maxwell stern thank you once again this was an absolute delight 